it's truly inspiring to sit with over 60 people in this Rohatsu session. Reminds me of the first Rohatsu we did here 17 years ago. It was a combined combination of uh, Zen Community of Oregon and Dharma Rain Zen Center. And I think we had about the same number of people. We had people stashed in closets and under tables and everywhere. 85. 85. It was amazing. And we have a lot of people now who are teaching, who maybe came to that retreat or one of the subsequent retreats in the next few years here and are now teaching. It's wonderful. This morning I had to make a split-second decision. Do I individually bow to all the people who are now teachers? And I counted nine, <laughs> and I decided not to. <laughs> but the Shuso should do it. <laughs> but 60 people have set aside their many responsibilities to come sit quietly together for an entire week is actually a kind of miracle in this world. Imagine how the world might change if warring factions could all agree to sit down together in silence for a week, to work side by side cleaning toilets, if they cooked food for each other, if they passed food to their perceived enemies, if they chanted sacred texts or hymns together and made beautiful harmony with their voices, and if they prayed or meditated together side by side for hours, all in silence. It might bring about a miracle Actually, it does bring about a miracle. It brings about a miracle inside of us. It brings together the warring, fearful, anxious factions within us in our own heart-mind and bathes them in the twofold blessed medicine of sitting still and silence. Stillness and silence. And then Wangel calls these the two pills of the three pills. The first pill is inner silence, which is undisturbed by sound, especially undisturbed by the sound of thoughts. The second pill is inner stillness, stillness which is undisturbed by movement, by motion. And third pillar, spacious mind, which emerges when we are truly still, when we connect with that inner stillness and rest in it, and then watch things, movements emerge from it, sensations emerge from it, constant change emerge from it, the cauldron of all existence. And that inner silence, which is undisturbed by sound and especially the sound of our thoughts. Our thoughts have the ability to jerk us around and jerk us out of this place, this sacred place. Which doesn't know inside and outside. And to sit anchored in that silence and watch, listen for sounds to emerge. Exist for a while, change, disappear. It's truly a blessing. And the more we practice, the more it, come, it comes to be perceived as a kind of miracle. That out of nothing, everything and back to nothing returns everything 
and we can sit and experience it. It's a miracle. We keep emphasizing bringing the mind back to the present moment. Enlightenment cannot be in the past. What I mentioned this morning of putting the past in a box and putting it away is something that I invented when I was practicing early on as a way to put the past away. As vividly as possible, I imagine putting all the past in a box, tying it up, whatever kind of wrapping paper or ribbon, and then putting it behind me. And then the same thing with the future. Enlightenment cannot be in the past. It is not the province of ancient masters. Our true nature what we call our innate wisdom, our inherent compassion, does not lie in the past. So we must guide our mind away from its obsessions with the events of the past. Repeatedly guide our mind away from a place where suffering often lies. Even if our excursions to the past aren't to places of pain and suffering, even if we're self-soothing by thinking of past times when we were happy, (coughs) suffering is still ready to pounce when we return to the present, which is just ordinary. And by comparison with the remembered happiness of a past time is unsatisfactory. Past happiness is just a dream. And when we have a happy dream at night and we awaken, we don't keep returning to that past dream. Dreams of suffering or dreams of happiness, we don't keep returning to them for years. If our mind veers off into past mistakes and regrets, we have to remind ourselves that we're intelligent, we can learn from our mistakes, usually in one trial. And we don't need the mind to use our past mistakes as a cudgel to beat ourselves up. Non-thinking. Non-thinking, as Dogen Zenji said, non-thinking. How do we approach non-thinking? by relinquishing, by renouncing, repeatedly, by finding the past not so interesting, not so enchanting, not so distressing. It's just a dream. Its meaning is here. Its meaning is in our body, our mind, our heart, right here. Enlightenment cannot be in the future, or we would always be chasing it. And it was always elude us. Enlightenment is present right here, right now. It's actually quite obvious. It's closer than the blood in your veins. It is only obscured. It is only obscured by the restlessness of the heart-mind. By our unbelievable fondness for generating thoughts and generating emotions. Somehow we've come to believe that that's who we are, our thoughts and our emotions. And even beyond that, to believe that the more dramatic, the better. We say it over and over again, because it's over and over true. Sitting still is the best way to let the heart-mind settle into its natural state to reveal its natural state, still, unclouded, stable, and expanded. Still, unclouded, stable, and expanded. 
when we sit in this way, eventually, often unexpectedly, rays of light of luminous mind can shine through as insights. which is wonderful and makes us excited and encourages us to continue. Oh, I had an insight. But what then, after an insight emerges from that deep, ever-flowing river of prajna paramita, wisdom beyond wisdom? What then, after the pipes to access that river become unclogged and it starts to flow in our life as hogan often says an insight and 6 dollars will buy you coffee at starbucks with a controversial christmas cup what good is an insight if we don't fold that insight into our life and change our life, change our mind, change our heart, change our entire experience of being alive as a human being. In our teacher's circle, in October, we studied the possibility of rebirth, that something, something, Thing is maybe too strong. Some essence, some imprint continues after we die. And the Buddha said it did. The Buddha said it did. And then there's some research evidence. Children who remember past lives and sometimes the information that they have can be confirmed without any way that they could have known that information, detailed information. So if we leave it in the realm of don't know, even if we have our own inklings about it, still, if something does continue, what do we want to continue and be handed on to someone else, someone else? What gift do we want to give to future beings (coughs) in a world that we worry now will be more difficult than the one we grew up in? What can we give them that will help them come to stability, equanimity, an expanded mind in their life, despite perhaps increased difficulties, dramatically increased difficulties. We don't know. So we all ponder that. Pondering is great. But then, how do we put that into action in our lives, in our practice? Whatever we see, we would like to pass on. And then in this teaching circle, we looked at karma. And what karma really is, is intention. Intentional thought, intentional speech, intentional action. And all the little thoughts, even the barely discernible thoughts, or the not discernible thoughts, count as intention. At some deep level, they are intended something in us forms them and brings them up into our consciousness. I used to say when I first began teaching that the Buddha said that we cannot control our mind. Therefore, our thoughts are not to be blamed. We can't be blamed for our thoughts, even thoughts that are, let's say, fantasies about breaking the precepts as long as they're not translated into speech or action. And we can't be blamed for them. That was very comforting in early stages of practice, but it turns out to be comforting only in early stages of practice. 
actually not true. Because thoughts are the things that form speech and action. That is the origin. So we have to look at the origin and change it. That's a big order. That's a big task. But we actually know how to do it from our long periods of sitting. When the mind settles, when the heart-mind settles, and thoughts become irrelevant, amusing, ridiculous, boring, when they lose their power to impel speech or action. And then eventually, when there is no thinking, when there are periods of what I'm now calling thought-free zones, we used to encourage people for at least three breaths, be free from thought. Let the mind rest completely in silence for at least three breaths, and then expand that. Three, we said three breaths because you don't have to count three breaths. The mind can be aware of three breaths without actually counting, because counting the word one and two and three sometimes gets the mind going in thoughts. Very important to practice thought-free intervals. So try that during this session. Enjoy it. Enjoy the peace and quiet. Whatever insights arise, we have to fold them into our life and change our life. To change our mind, to change our heart, to change our entire experience of being alive as a human being. We try to describe what that's like, but it's hard to describe. Everybody's had some experience of being in what they call the flow, of not thinking, of not making decisions, of no hesitation, of no censorship in the mind, and just flowing with things as they are. Everyone's had some experience of that. That's a taste of the transformation to come. the transformation that arises from this practice. To be free from dukkha, dukkha is friction. To be free from friction, to flow freely and meet each thing as it arises, it's not easy. And we get stuck all the time. I get stuck all the time. But as our practice goes on, we see the finer and finer levels of friction Slight irritation. Wake up in the morning, slight flavor of, eh, I don't want to be here. Just slight, just slight flavor. You know, like a drop of vanilla in a quart of water. But that's what we have to attend to. Radharoshi often says, you have to cut it off at the roots. And he says the roots are like when you cut a lotus root, and you pull two pieces of a lotus root apart, if you've ever done that, There are all these very fine strings, very, very fine strings. Every single one of those has to be cut off. So as we go deeper into practice, we find more and more subtle ways where we are clinging or resisting. And we work with those together. In this session, I decided to use the teachings of Buddhist women. Since Hogan and I will be alternating talks, I'll use the women's stories, and he can use the men's if he wishes. People often complain it's difficult to find stories of enlightenment involving women, and it's true. I'm going to start with women in the Theravada tradition, 
it's very interesting to discover what kind of women practiced with the Buddha. All kinds of women practiced with the Buddha. He ignored caste distinctions, which were dominant at the time. All kinds of women, queens and prostitutes, and wives and mothers and widows, rich and poor, young women and very old women. Some were led to the Buddha by their husbands. Some were tricked into listening to the Buddha by their husbands. Some found the Buddha on their own and had to overcome their husbands or their fathers or their father-in-law's objections. Some of them had to trick those men into listening to the Buddha. And we chant some of their names in morning service. There are many, and I'll just touch on some examples. Visaka was born into a family that was so wealthy that their provisions never ran out. And this was said to be because of past merit, because during a famine, time of famine, the whole family had given away their food to people who were hungry. And through the merit of that action, they, uh, when they were reborn, they were reborn into a family whose provisions never ran out. Please ponder for a moment. That's like us. Truly, our provisions don't run out, our essential provisions. You know, once in a while, toilet paper. But water, clothing, the essentials, light. It's actually wonderful when there's a blackout here in the, in the winter, and then when it comes back on, we appreciate it. This abundance that we live with, we take for granted. She first heard the Buddha talk when she was seven <coughs> because her family were followers of the Buddha. And she, along with her 500 maidservants, 500 is a term that's used in the Pali Canon to mean a lot, but it could have been 500. Her family was so wealthy. She, along with her 500 maidservants, all attained stream entry. What is stream entry? It's a kind of technical term in, ther- term in Theravada Buddhism, which means that you have intuited the possibility of enlightenment. You have been called by something to the possibility of enlightenment. And you have let go of the three first fetters. The three first fetters are clinging to rites and rituals as a way to enlightenment is is one of them. So the belief, if I do 10,000 bows, I'll be enlightened. Or if I bathe in the Ganges River every day for the rest of my life, I'll be enlightened. We all have them, superstitions, little superstitions. Second is clinging to self-view. Clinging to self-view. And this is, it doesn't mean, it doesn't matter whether the self-view is inflated and arrogant or whether it is deflated and self-despising. It's still self-view. And clinging to skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is that which undermines our faith in ourselves as practitioners, our ability to become enlightened, undermines our faith in teachers, in religious organizations, in the Sangha, and so on. So when those three fetters, clinging to rites and rituals, clinging to self-view, and clinging to skeptical doubt, are abandoned, and the precepts are taken on as a guide for life, there is no turning back. It's like entering a fast-flowing stream, and you can't swim backwards. So that's stream entry. And all of us, to some degree or another, have entered the stream. You wouldn't be here. She was married off to a very wealthy man, and there are amazing descriptions of that wedding, (coughs) where uh, the jewelry that was ordered for her wedding took so long to make that they burned all the fuel in the jeweler's fires. And then they had to burn furniture. And then they had to burn houses. <laughs> and then they soaked their clothing with oil and burned their clothing. And finally, they got all the, the jewelry that was ordered built and made, fashioned. And then 
so many cattle were given as part of her dowry that all the streets in the city were clogged with cattle. So she was married to a wealthy man, but his follower, his father, so that was her father-in-law, was a follower of naked ascetics. And so he refused to let the Buddha come to his house to teach. And once when the father-in-law was listening to some naked ascetics preaching, a Buddhist monk came begging for food, but her father-in-law ignored him and wouldn't give him anything. And Visaka said to the monk, pass on, venerable sir, for my father-in-law is eating stale food. So she was very gentle and very sweet and kind, but she could also be a smart aleck. So her father-in-law was so incensed, he had her thrown out of the house, but her servants refused to do it because she was so beloved. And then he had six advisors that he consulted, but they all found her innocent of any wrongdoing. And the father-in-law then apologized, and he let the Buddha and his disciples come for food offerings and for Dharma talks, because that was the exchange. If you gave the Buddha and his disciples food, then they gave you the Dhamma, the food of the Dhamma. Uh, but he didn't want to be seen as interested in the Buddha. He was willing to feed the Buddha, because that's what his daughter-in-law wanted. But he hid secretly behind a curtain and listened to what the Buddha said, and eventually he was converted and became a follower of the Buddha. So in her lifetime, Visaka gave birth to at least 10 sons and 10 daughters. She was said to be as strong as an elephant and took care of all of her children and cooked for them and also cooked for the Buddha's disciples and also especially took care of sick monks and nuns. And she was known as the Buddha's chief patroness. Once after she had gone to a, the hall to hear a talk by the Buddha, she accidentally left some of her jewelry there. And Ananda, the Buddha's cousin, found it and uh, tried to return it to her, but she took this letting go as a sign. And she decided to sell the jewelry and donate the proceedings to the Sangha. But it was so valuable that no one could buy it. So she bought it herself <laughs> and then used the money to build a monastery. So she was foremost in generosity. The Buddha once asked her what she expected to gain from her donations. It's a familiar question, right? Remember Emperor Wu and Bodhidharma? Emperor Wu had built monasteries and temples and ordained hundreds of monks and nuns and asked Bodhidharma, what merit have I gained from all of this activity? So the Buddha asked Visaka the same question because Visaka had petitioned him to be allowed to serve uh, food, uh, enough food every morning that all the monks and nuns could eat. Uh, gruel, well, it would be a morning because they had to eat before noon. So they would have their basic provisions. It would be like we wanted to donate enough rice that everybody could have rice and to donate food to those who were sick, and especially for their welfare, and also to donate food for the, those who cared for those who were sick, and so on. So the Buddha said, yes, you can do that. But then he said, well, what do you expect to gain from all these donations? And she said, when a monk or nun dies, then the living monks and nuns come to you, O Buddha, to ask about their destination in the afterlife. And, and the Buddha would often say, oh, he could, he could foresee that they would become an arhant or, or whatever would happen. It's called their destination. And the Buddha would answer, stream entry, once returning, non-returning, arhantship, different levels of realization. And then Visaka said, once you've proclaimed their destination, then I will ask the other ordained, did this one who died ever come to Savati? And if they answer yes, then I will be glad because I will know that they, their practice was enabled by, by my donations of 
daily rice porridge, food, care of sick monks, robes for the rains, because the, ro the monks were getting soaked in the rains and hadn't any dry robes, and bathing robes for the nuns. The nuns were getting teased because when they bathed, they were being teased because they looked like prostitutes bathing naked, partly naked. So she donated bathing robes for the nuns. So she would ask the living ordained, did, did these monks or nuns ever come to Savati? And if they said yes, then she would realize, oh, they may have benefited from my donations. Remembering this, I feel glad. And feeling glad, then I feel happy. And feeling happy, then my body will be tranquil. And my body being tranquil, then I will feel pleasure. And when I feel pleasure, then my mind will be concentrated. And when my mind is concentrated, that will enable the enlightenment factors to develop. And the Buddha was pleased with her answer. <coughs> there were old women who practiced with the Buddha. So often people come to practice and they feel like they've come to practice late. Maybe they didn't start practicing until they were 40 or 50 or 60 and they feel like, oh, I wish that I had started practicing like these young people who were resident at the monastery in my early 20s and then I would have so many more years to practice. But the, the Dharma has its own time-keeping device, its own clock. And it's my observation that people who, quote, come to the Dharma late, after lifetimes of something, <laughs> practice, but what they consider late, the practice speeds up because there's some extra urgency. There isn't the feeling of, well, I got a lot of time. I'll mess around for a while and then <coughs> if I get a diagnosis of cancer, then I'll really practice. Right? No. We know. We can count. When you start being able to count your probable years on two hands, there's some urgency that develops. So here's examples of two older women. Dhamma was from a respectable family and married a respectable husband. When she heard the Buddha teach she wanted to become a nun, could not receive the necessary permission from her husband. In an act of devotion typical of highly and also highly respected in an Indian wife, she did not disobey. Rather, she waited until her husband's death and then became ordained. Her realization experienced happened one day when returning to the hermitage after alms rounds, she lost her balance and fell. Suddenly I fell down and could see clearly. My heart was freed, a part of her poem. So often, enlightenment comes in that, that sort of time when we're off balance, when we're not in control, when something can pierce through the shell of self. Sita, in Rajagaha, which, <laughs> sorry, this reminds me of whenever I go to the doctor now because of I'm, how old I am, they say, do you feel safe in your own house? Yes. How many people do you live with? Um, lots. <laughs> How many times have you fallen down in the last few months? I always lie. But this kind of falling down, this is the kind of falling down we want, right? In Rajagaha, Sita was born into a well-to-do family. It was hearing Gautama's teachings at the gate of Rajagaha that led her to seek ordination by Pajapati. Yet it was not until her old age that she gained the insight she sought. This breakthrough occurred one day when she had climbed Vulture Peak and had done the usual exercise of a recluse. Though Vulture Peak was not a high mountain, it required some stamina to ascend. It consisted mostly of rock and was named for the formation at the top, which resembled a vulture's head. From the top, Sita would have seen a beautiful, wide view of rolling, craggy hills in the dense forest below. Here's her poem. Though I am thin, sick, and lean on a stick, I have climbed up Vulture Peak. Robe thrown down, bowl turned over, leaned on a rock, 
then great darkness opened. Bowl overturned. In Zen we say, the black lacquer, the black lacquer bucket, its bottom drops out. Sitting in the black lacquer bucket, the bottom drops out. The bowl, what we hold in that bowl of self, overturned in the robe put down, whatever we use to cover our essential nature, becoming truly naked, truly extinguished. Another one of the Buddha's nuns was Kema, who was regarded as foremost in wisdom. She was um, paired with Upalavana. Uh, Upalavana was uh, excelled in, in psychic power, unusual powers of discernment, and Kema excelled in wisdom. The Buddha held up these two as models and examples for all the nuns to emulate. The name Kema means security and is a synonym for nirvana. The nun Kema belonged to a royal family from the land of Magadha. She was extremely beautiful and fair to behold, and when she reached marriageable age, she became one of the chief consorts of King Bimbisara. The king was a stream enterer and a generous benefactor of the Blessed One. He had donated his own bamboo grove to the Sangha and constantly looked after the monks with great solicitude. But although Kema had often heard about the Buddha from the king, she resisted going to see him, fearful that he would find fault with her beauty of form and preach to her about the vanity of sensual pleasures, to which she was tightly attached. The king, however, found a way to induce her to listen to the teaching. He hired a troop of singers to sing songs to her in praise of the harmony, peacefulness, and beauty of the Bamboo Grove Monastery. And because Kema loved the beauties of nature, she decided to visit there. Decked out in royal splendor with silk and sandalwood, she went to the monastery and was gradually drawn to the hall where the Buddha was preaching. The Buddha, who read her thoughts, created by his psychic powers, a beautiful young woman standing beside him, fanning him. Kema was enthralled by this lovely woman and thought to herself, Never before have I seen such a woman. I myself do not come with even a fraction of her beauty. Surely those who say the aesthetic Gotama disparages beauty of form must be misrepresenting him. The Buddha then made this created image gradually change from youth to middle age and then to old age, with broken teeth, gray hair, and wrinkled skin until it finally fell to the ground lifeless. Only then did she realize the vanity of external beauty and the fleeting nature of life. She thought, has such a body come to be wrecked like that? Then my body too must share that fate. At the conclusion, Kema was established in the fruit of stream entry. Later, she asked her husband to join the order of nuns, King Bimbisara, and he agreed. And she became famous for her wisdom, her deep insight, and her great learning, and also her per per perspicacity in discussion. She actually once taught King Bimbisara, her former husband, and he was very obsessed with what happens after death. Does the Tathagata exist after death or not exist? Does everything go without remainder? Or is there something that persists? Does the Tathagata still exist? Reborn as something else. Or does the Tathagata both exist and not exist? That's like a compromise. Like, okay, the body doesn't exist, but the mind continues or the soul continues. Or neither. 
that he neither exists nor doesn't exist after death, which is a kind of a philosophical escape and is still based essentially on the notion of self. The Buddha said that what we call I and what we call this world are just a state of constant flux. And she explained this to the king. She explained what the Buddha taught. And the Buddha later, later praised her. So what we call I, what we call beauty, what we call ugliness, what we call old, what we call young, are in a state of constant flux. And to ask questions is like asking questions about an illusion. To ask the kinds of questions that try to pin down the illusion doesn't make sense. It's like asking, I tried to find an analogy. I thought this one was pretty good. It's like asking, like asking, after the new Star Wars movie is over, will Luke Skywalker continue to exist or not exist? Or both exist and not exist? Or neither exist and not exist? All right? When you think about it that way, and people get fixated on the character on the movie screen, right? And they often will stop a movie star and try to talk to them like they're that character in the movie. That's what we're like. Now, there's a modern Kema, and we actually mention her in our chanting, Aya Kema. Aya Kema was born in Germany in 1923 to Jewish parents. And actually, uh, her family was well-to-do, and she was given tickets to the Olympics in 1936. And she sat very near Hitler in the stadium and heard him harangue the crowd. And she became very worried, even though she was quite young. She was only 13, but she could sense something was really off. She didn't, she wasn't allowed to do the Nazi salute. She was the only person in the whole stadium that didn't do the Nazi salute because she was Jewish. And Jews were not allowed to do the Nazi salute. But she was just a child, so it was, it was ignored. She lived through Kristallnacht. And at age 15, her parents escaped from Germany and went to China, to Shanghai, which was one place where Jews could go. We had a person in our sangha who went, she and her family went to Shanghai in Singapore. So isn't that ironic that China, which has been our enemy, was the only place that would accept Jews who escaped, many Jews who escaped. And she was sent to Scotland because it was, she was 15 and it was thought to be unsafe for her to go to Shanghai. So she and 200 other children went to Scotland. She lived there for two years. And then she joined her parents in Shanghai. But then when the war broke out completely, Japan conquered Shanghai. And the family was moved into a ghetto in Shanghai. And her father died five days before the war ended. Didn't see the end of the war. While she was there, when she was 22, she married, and later she had a divorce and then married again. She had two children. She had several grandchildren. And she became increasingly discontent and became interested in spiritual paths. And she and her husband and her children traveled all over the world. She became a, a seeker, kind of dragged them along with her. At one point, they had a communal farm, thinking that that would be a benefit to the world. She studied with the Essenes. The Essenes are the probably the people who created the Dead Sea Scrolls. She came to America. She tra uh, trained at San Francisco Zen Center at Tassajara. She went to Burma and trained there. She went to Thailand and trained there. She went to Sri Lanka twice. She met, met Nyanaponika Thera there. And then, because she was really determined to become ordained, she had to go to Taiwan because full ordination wasn't um, 
didn't exist anywhere else. So she was uh, ordained at Silai Temple in the Foguangsha order at age 65. The Foguangsha order is an order that is very, very socially active around the world. They have hospitals, they have clinics, they have mobile clinics, they have orphanages, they have homes for the elderly, and they do immense amount of good work. Ayakema was one of the people who organized the first international conference of Buddhist women in 1987. And that led to the foundation of the Sakyadita International Association of Buddhist Women, which you might have heard about. All ordained Buddhist women are invited to it. She established or reestablished a nunnery for nuns on an island off the coast of Sri Lanka. And then she returned to Germany and began teaching at Buddha House in Munich. And I've met several of her disciples at gatherings of Buddhist teachers, and they're very wonderful people. She had been suffering from breast cancer since 1983. She went to Germany in 1989. She refused treatment. But in 1993, she had a lot of trouble with this growing cancer. So she had a mastectomy. And during her five-week recovery period, she almost died. But then she was stabilized. She was resuscitated and stabilized by the medical people. And later, when she was interviewed, she had a positive experience at that time. She said, there were two days in the hospital when I had that feeling that the energy was leaving through the feet, actually. There was a collapse of the whole system. Losing one's life energy is actually a very pleasant state because there's less, less self-assertion. I mean, you haven't got the energy to assert yourself. So things are more acceptable. Everything is acceptable. It's fine the way it is. One could say that action of dying, if there's no resistance, is extremely pleasant. That seemed to be less and less life energy within the body, and I was just relaxing into that. I was perfectly willing to let it happen, but then these doctors came around, <laughs> and my blood pressure went way, way down. She, and she actually could hear all the things the doctors were saying. I mean, like almost not happening. And that's when you lose all your energy. It was a very interesting experience. And now can I, I can see that it's extremely pleasant. It's just letting go and disappearing. And it's very nice. Ayakema died at age 74 at Buddha House, which she had founded in Germany after having breast cancer for 14 years. And her ashes are in a stupa at Buddha House. And you can uh, access her teachings online. I'll just read you a little bit. And I may read a little bit more. There's lots. may read a little bit more in this session or in future sessions. This is what she says about the meditative mind. People are often surprised to find it is difficult to meditate. Outwardly, it seems to be such a simple matter to just sit down on a little pillow and watch one's breath. What could be hard about that? The difficulty lies in the fact that one's whole being is totally unprepared. Our mind, senses, and feelings are used to trade in the marketplace, namely the world we live in. But meditation cannot be done in a marketplace. That's impossible. There's nothing to buy or trade or arrange in meditation. But most people's attitude remains the same as usual, and that just doesn't work. We need patience with ourselves. It takes time to change to the point where meditation is actually a state of mind, available at any time, because the marketplace is no longer important. She means the values of the marketplace, right? Trading this for that. If I do this, I'll get that. The marketplace just doesn't mean going shopping. It means everything that is done in the world. All the connections, ideas, hopes, and memories, all the rejections and resistances, all our reactions. So she, she extends shopping mind to all of that. It's really part of shopping mind. I don't want that. Oh, I want that. I want to buy that. 
I want to get rid of that. That's ugly. I would never wear that. What would that say about me? There is this difference between one who knows and one who practices. The one who knows may understand the words and concepts, but the one who practices knows only one thing, namely, to become that truth. Words are a utilitarian means, not only for communication, but also to solidify ideas. That's why words can never reveal the truth. Only personal experience can. We attain our experiences through realizing what's happening within and why it is as it is. This means that we combine watchfulness with inquiry as to why we're thinking, saying, and reacting the way we do. Unless we use our mind in this way, meditation will be an on-again, off-again affair and will remain difficult. When meditation doesn't bring joy, most people are quite happy to forget about it. Without the meditative mind and experience, the Dhamma cannot arise in the heart because the Dhamma is not in words. The Buddha was able to verbalize his inner experience for our benefit to give us a guideline. That means we can find a direction, but we have to do the traveling ourselves. In the beginning, the body just doesn't like sitting cross-legged on the floor or in a chair still for many hours, we can use this situation as skillful means. When discomfort arises in the body, we learn to pay attention to the mind's reaction and do not move automatically. Everybody in the world is trying to get rid, to get out of any kind of discomfort. Everybody in the world is trying to get out of any kind of discomfort with an instinctive, immediate reaction. It's not that we're not going to get out of discomfort, but in order to make meditation pay off, we have to learn to get out of the instinctive, immediate response. It's those responses that land us in dukkha over and over again. When there is an uncomfortable feeling, it is essential to realize what is happening within. We notice that there is sense contact, in this case, touch. The body is making contact, the knees with the pillow, the legs with each other. Several contacts are happening. From all sense contacts, feelings arise. There is no way out of that. This is how human beings are made. The Buddha taught cause and effect, that dependent upon any sense contact, feeling results. There are three kinds of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We can forget about the neutral ones because we are hardly ever aware of them. Neutral is actually considered pleasant because at least it doesn't hurt. From this particular touch contact that is being made through the sitting posture, there arises, after a while, an unpleasant feeling. The immediate reaction is to move. Don't. Investigate. By getting to know our own mind, we get to know the world and the universe. By getting to know our own mind, we get to know the world and the universe. All minds contain the seed of enlightenment. Unless we know our own mind, we cannot develop and cultivate that seed. Here the mind has been contacted with an unpleasant feeling. Our perception says, this is painful. Our next step are the mental formations, which are also karma formations because we make karma through our thought processes. First came the sense contact. Secondly, feeling arose. Then perception, naming it, followed by dislike. At the moment of dislike, there is the running away through changing our position. That is the karma-making, the karma-making aspect. This is minor negative karma, yet it's negative, because the mind is in a state of ill will by saying, I don't like it. The mind may start all kinds of rationalizations. I wish I brought my own little chair. I can't sit. At my age, I shouldn't do things like this. Meditation is just too difficult. None of these explanations have any intrinsic validity. They are only a mind reacting to an unpleasant feeling. Unless we become acquainted with our mind's reactions, 
were not using meditation in the most beneficial manner. Knowing the unpleasant feeling, we can now try to acquaint ourselves with its true nature. Our whole life is lived according to our feelings. Unless we become aware of our reactions to feelings, we remain half asleep. There is a beautiful little book called The Miracle of Being Awake. This miracle is nothing but mindfulness, knowing what's going on within. When we have realized we want to get rid of the unpleasant feeling, then we can try to disown it for a moment. Only the arhant is fully capable of complete detachment, but we can do so for a short time. The unpleasant feeling has arisen without our asking for it. And we don't have to believe it to be ours. We can just let it be a feeling. Kyogen used to say, if you're counting your breath to 10 and the pain becomes unbearable, stretch yourself. Count to 10 at least one more time. We can just let it be a feeling. If we do that for a moment, we can get back to the meditation subject. Count to 10 one more time. And we have won a victory over our own negative reactions. Otherwise, we are letting our unpleasant feelings rule us in whatever way they want. The whole of humanity runs after pleasant feelings and away from unpleasant ones. And unless we at least know that, we have no reference point for inner change. Unless we know that, we have no reference point for inner change. It may not be possible to reverse that reaction yet, but at least we know that it is happening. After we have become aware of our mind's intention, we're free to move and change our sitting position. There's nothing wrong with changing one's posture, but there's something wrong with instinctive, impetuous habits. Meditation means total awareness. Being awake is not the opposite of being asleep. It is the opposite of being dull and foggy. Such mind states are mostly due to an unwillingness to look at our own dukkha. We'd rather hide in a fog. In meditation, that won't do. The Buddha said that this body is a cancer. The body as a whole is a disease. And we can experience that when just sitting still and it becomes uncomfortable. Everybody would like bliss, peace, and happiness. That is a natural wish. They are available in meditation with a lot of practice and some good karma. However, they are not the goal of meditation. The goal of meditation is insight. Yet skillful means for gaining insight are needed and are found in tranquility meditation. Stories of the ancestors can inspire us. We realize that they went through many kinds of difficulties and that actually we are practicing in a heavenly realm. We practice in the good times to be ready for the inevitable difficult times. Maybe we would practice more diligently if if we were suffering more. Hold that in your mind when your knees hurt. But we all suffer. And whatever kind of suffering you encounter during this session, fold it into your practice. Knee pain, restlessness, intrusive thoughts, fear, skeptical doubt. Just sit with it and study it carefully, as these women did. The way out is in, to go deeply into what we are running away from and let it become the source of our enlightenment. Please practice well. Concentration, mindfulness, noticing and bringing the mind back gently. Determination, applying extra energy when needed. Pleasure, lighten up when you get too grim. Everybody can try it right now, smile. Notice if it changes your state of mind. 
smile and enjoy small things and the absurdity of the mind. Investigation, where did the mind go and why? What was its intention in wandering off? What makes up this mass of sensations I call myself? <coughs> Equanimity, not to be pulled forward or to be pushed away. To abide with what is. Please practice all of these seven factors of enlightenment and reveal your own enlightenment. Thank you.